I'm Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center. Before I get to the introductions today, I just have a few announcements of upcoming roundtables. Uh, next Saturday, April 25th, another John Templeton Foundation-sponsored roundtable, The Changing Nature of Free Will, with philosopher Akhil Bilgrami, economist Louis Cabral, theologian Brigitte Kahl, neuroscientist Kenneth Kishida, and mathematician Simon Koken. Then Saturday, May 2nd, Trauma and Its After Effects, Part 1, War and Genocide, with historian Adam Sachs, multimedia director and publicist Gottfried Wagner, psychoanalyst Eva Weil, and journalist Phil Zabriskie. Then on Saturday, May 16th, Humans and Animals, Continuities and Discontinuities, with mind-body investigator Theodore Diamond, Jr., animal cognitive scientists Irene Pepperberg and Diana Reese, and still others. I want to let you know about the Helix Center Annual Benefit Dinner, which will take place Friday evening, May 8th, Information and ticket purchases are available through the Helix Center website, www.helixcenter.org. And we encourage you to follow us on Facebook and uh, tweet on Twitter if, uh, if you're so dis disposed. Okay, now on to today's group. Uh, when I uh, mention your name, please raise your hand so the audience uh, will recognize you. Patricia Bauer is Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Psychology at Emory University, where she also serves as Senior Associate Dean for Research at its College of Arts and Sciences. Her research on autobiographical memory and its development, and in particular the phenomenon of infantile or childhood amnesia, is the subject of her book, Remembering the Time of Our Lives, Memory in Infancy and Beyond, as well as author of numerous empirical articles. Throughout her career, her work has been funded by the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. She also currently directs an NIH predoctoral training grant on mechanisms of learning across development and species. Paul Harris is the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Education at Harvard University. His research is in the development of cognition, emotion, and imagination, reflected in his past books, Children and Emotion, and The Work of the Imagination. His most recent book, Trusting What You're Told, How Children Learn from Others, which received an Eleanor Maccabee Award from the American Psychological Association and the Book Award of the Cognitive Development Society, describes his current studies of how children learn about history, science, and religion on the basis of what trusted informants tell them. Regina Pally is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice with a special interest in parents and couples. She has studied and written about neuroscience for mental health professionals and the lay public. In 2008, she founded the Center for Reflective Parenting, whose mission is to promote healthy child development by strengthening the relationship bonds that children have with all those who care for them through an emphasis on reflective thinking. The current focus of her writing is reflective parenting in relationship to child development, brain development, and the parent-child relationship. Colin Phillips is professor and distinguished scholar-teacher in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Maryland, where he directs the Language Science Center and is associate director of the Neuroscience and Cognitive Science Program. He investigates the mental and neurocoding of language, children's effortless acquisition of language, and linguistic illusions. His research has investigated 15 languages, and he directs Langscape, excuse me, Langscape, an online portal for language diversity that combines interactive mapping with diverse resources for 6,400 languages. 
He is also an evangelist for language science, a broadly interdisciplinary field that connects fundamental science with applications in education, technology, and health. Stephen J. Wine is Associate Dean for Child Analysis Training and Supervising Analyst and Supervisor for Child and Adolescent Analysis at the New York Psychoanalytic Society and Institute. In addition to his devotion to clinical practice, research, and teaching, he is a member of the Center for Advanced Psychoanalytic Studies. With the late Sidney Blatt, he co-authored The Assessment of Qualitative and Structural Dimensions of Object Relations, the Object Relations Inventory. Uh, he participated for 20 years in a multidisciplinary study group on learning disabilities. In 2008, the New York Psychoanalytic presented him with the Charles Brenner Teaching Award for Outstanding Contributions to Psychoanalytic Education. Paul Zielinski is a children's book illustrator and writer, a winner of numerous awards, including the Caldecott Medal for his retelling of Rapunzel, and three Caldecott honors for Hansel and Gretel, for Rumpelstiltskin, and for Swamp Angel. His styles range from Renaissance-inspired oil paintings for his fairy tales to the more cartoonish drawings of the recent Z is for Moose. Certain of his books, particularly The Wheels on the Bus, one of my son's all-time favorites, by the way, <laughs> communicate strikingly well with learning disabled or autistic children. He holds an MFA in painting from the Tyler School of Art and a BA from Yale College, where he was the, in the first class that Maurice Sendak ever taught. He sits on the board of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, co-chairs the Children's and Young Adult Committee of Penn American Center, and volunteers with other organizations that promote books and literacy for children. And now, on to our panel. Well. I'm particularly glad to be here today on my own turf. <laughs> I guess I'm the only one who's used to this building and this organization. But many years ago, Paul and I met. Um, we were classmates in college, although we didn't know each other in college. But I knew his name because my children grew up on the wheels of the bus and Rumpelstiltskin. And they came to the reunion. And after Paul and I started talking in the Peabody Museum, where all the dinosaurs were, I asked my kids if they would like to meet him because I figured they'd be so excited about the books and actually meeting the man who had done the illustration. And my daughter was, in fact, very excited because she said she had never met a living author before. <laughs> uh, that might be one illustration of the difference between children and adults' minds. Well, I, I didn't grow up wanting to be a children's book uh, maker because, because I had the same point of view. I didn't really know that living people did them, and I had books that were very important to me, but I kind of assumed they were made by dead people. <laughs> it's largely true, I guess. <laughs> Increasingly. Well, I don't know if we should just join in, but I am stimulated to think about um, in... I've always been fascinated with why children are so fixated on stories. I used to tell my kids stories, and I could do, I could take nine-hour car trips with them, as long as I kept up the story. And so fast forward, now that I'm studying about the neuroscience of the brain, I'm writing a book on reflective parenting. For it. So in my research, I came up, there's a lot of research on the importance of storytelling, stories, telling stories, reading stories, talking about stories, discussing stories, in terms of the development of reflective thinking in the mind, and that children learn a lot from their encounter with stories. And even part of their imaginative play is involved in 
making sense of how the mind works and other people, particularly other people's minds. You know, we all have privy to our own minds, but it's other people's minds that are troublesome. And uh, stories and telling stories seems to be a really important component of child development for that Is reason. Is that different from, from adult? Be, uh, the patterns, the importance of stories. You know, stories seem to be the way advertising agencies glom onto people's, you know, wish to buy things. Every, everything, it gets better when it's attached to a story. It is, it is. I think we're all drawn to stories because we can personally relate. But theoretically, a person, an adult's mind should be developed by now. And the child's mind is actually developing in relationship and how they will discuss stories and what the points are that, you're, that they're able to comprehend will be different. It's just a developing But there process. is, there was a neat study published a couple of years ago, I think. It was done here in New York. And they got the adult subjects to read some fiction. And after this brief dose of fiction, they tested them on various psychological insights. And the people who'd read classy fiction, I mean, George Eliot, as opposed to John Grisham, say, did better on these psychological uh, insights. So even adults have room to, to grow under these circumstances. <laughs> and certainly one of the most important functions of stories are stories about ourselves and about our families and about the people in our families. And it's through those stories, largely, that children come to establish that sense of self, that sense of self as, as separate from but related to others in the family. And those, those stories form the core of our autobiographical or personal memories that obviously are very important to us and that we hold uh, most dear. So Patricia, can I ask you a bit more about that? Because you've done so much research on infantile amnesia and the sort of recovery from it, so to speak? Uh, uh, recovery from it? Actually, I refer to, thank you, I refer to it as the, um, the onset of childhood amnesia. We often think about childhood amnesia, that as adults we have difficulty remembering the early years of our lives. And often that's talked about as, the, as we, when we start to have autobiographical memories as the offset of childhood amnesia. I actually think it's better conceptualized the other way, yeah. that it's the offset. When we begin to retain those stories, we're always, or the, those stories, those events, those memories, we're always forming them, even infants. We were yeah. talking about your 10-month-old yeah. grandchild. Your 10-month-old grandchild is forming memories um, and retaining them for short periods of time, yeah. um, and it's as we become able to retain those memories over longer periods of time that we see the offset um, of that childhood, or excuse me, the onset of that childhood amnesia, um, and that's one of the um, centers of study in autobiographical memories, why it is that even though children are forming memories, that we as adults have difficulty retaining them. Uh, it's one of the great mysteries of, in the memory research literature. So can we probe the mystery a little bit more? Because, Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I suppose if we look back at the last 20 years of research on infants, um, there's been dramatic evidence of how smart toddlers are, I mean nine-month-olds, 12-month-olds, you give them a social scene, they can work out who's been kind to whom, who's been nasty to whom, and they prefer the person who's kind and so forth. Mm -hmm. So in some sense they have all the intellectual or cognitive equipment to lay down a little narrative in their, 
in their growing brain. So that makes it all the more mysterious that in fact, virtually none of us have memories from our first year of life or even our second year of life. There's growing evidence that essentially what we what accounts for the, the this amnesia is accelerated forgetting. So as you say, very young infants are forming memories. They're able to uh, create a representational trace. They're able to use the same brain structures that we as adults use to form those memories. But the immediate experience, a lot of cognitive work has to be done to turn an immediate experience into an enduring memory trace. And the neural structures that are responsible for that transformation are very slow to develop. And I talk about this as um, kind of a leaky sieve um, that as infants, certainly they're forming memories, but a lot of the information that makes up a memory representation kind of leaks out. And it leaks out more rapidly than it does for uh, adults. And there's actually um, the, there's a growing body of literature demonstrating that accelerated forgetting that we think is therefore accounting for the loss of those memories that are formed and are, are held on and retained for some period of time, but then ultimately become the victim. Uh, they fall victim to the childhood amnesia. So what is it that ultimately clogs that sieve and makes sure that, that the, 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 the holes get... Uh, I talk about this as the colander theory of memory, that um, if you have lasagna noodles and you have a colander with big holes in it and you dump your lasagna noodles in, the water rushes out, but the lasagna noodles stay in. But memories aren't like lasagna noodles. They're like orzo, those little tiny bits of pasta. Um, and if you're going to make orzo and successfully hold on to it, you can't pour it into a colander with big holes. You have to pour it into one of those fine mesh nets. Um, and what happens over the course of the development is that with neural, uh, neural changes, we trade in essentially our holy colanders for nets <laughs> that can hold the grains of orzo. <laughs> so the way, you, the way you're saying it there, it's, it's suggesting that it's the container that is changing over time. But is it that the orzo is changing over time? The way I cook it, it gets more sticky and it doesn't go through. There you go. I, I actually so, think we're developing cheese sauce or something of right. that nature. So uh, you know, the, the elements of orzo, it's, we, infants are encoding the same bits and pieces of information, maybe not as many, not as elaborated, and they don't have as much of the sticky stuff to hold it together. Well, this, this, I wonder if this goes back to the point about the stories. Yes, which is indeed. Normally, as, as adults, we're good at making a story out of our experiences we can connect all of the different things going on life isn't as inherently structured as that what a story gives you is something which has the narrative made more explicitly and it has all those connections built in at an, is it the, at the earliest stage is it the case that the pieces of the memories are there but because it lacks the connections between them because it lacks the narrative that means that the individual pieces are more fragile and I think that's uh, we have beautiful data to speak to exactly that, that the more coherent that 
story is, the longer that memory tends to live on, uh, and less coherent memories that aren't, where the elements aren't very well connected to each other, those are the ones that fall prey to forgetting particularly rapidly, and, and particularly, they're particularly vulnerable to that kind of forgetting. So the, the, the story is the cheese sauce, the story is the starch um, in the pasta grains, and that really does play a very critical role in maintenance of those events and stories. So I, what about the role of language, though? So, I mean, by the time the child is two, two and a half, they're starting to tell these mm -hmm. little stories, which is a kind of rehearsal, which is a kind of strengthening, yes, right? Yes. Um, I, I, Colin can certainly speak to that in terms of development. Yes, the children have, you know, they can tell you who did what to whom, uh, but that kind of reflection on the significance or the importance of that experience. So the fact that, you know, this actor A did something to actor B can be encoded in a very elemental way or it can be encoded with respect to how that impacted you as an individual and the impact it had on, um, on the actors and, and the meaning that that has for the child's life. And I think that that's what's critically missing in many respects um, in right. very young children. Right. Yeah. Children are quite precocious in the development of the form of language, but in understanding the uses that we put it to, that tends to be much more delayed. So they will say things that we, we can read much more meaning into than they may do themselves. Um, you, you I, know, I think also there's a big part of this that has to do with learning or memory for what? What's the purpose? And the purpose of the infant, if I could put it that way, <laughs> is to learn how to attach to that person who's going to be the reliable source of safety, comfort, soothing. Not just food, but the whole emotional, social interaction. It's the very first purpose, I say, of what's going on. The child comes into the world really skilled at knowing how to do that, as long as there's an environment that engages the child in that way, right? So what you need to know and keep in memory is really only ultimately what's relevant to your life. And what isn't so relevant should be forgotten. I call it forgettery. There's memory and forgettery. <laughs> and you need to forget. It's a good thing to forget what's not relevant. And because the brain, while it can hold on to millions of pieces of information, billions of pieces of information, it's still a limited place and how particularly conscious memory. How do we know what's relevant, though, at the moment? It's we only don't. sometimes in reflection, um, in, in thinking back, that you see the relevance. Well, that that's actually an, was, yes, exactly. Well, that's a really good point. We don't know in the beginning what's relevant, which is children are much, at least my understanding of it, is children are much more good at learning kind of generalities. And later on, they learn more specifics. And so they need to hold on to those generalities to see what's going to apply in a specific situation. And you don't know. You have to be open-ended, and well, there's many potentials. Well, specific fairly quickly. After all, by the time they're 10 or 11 months, they're attached to a particular That's person. 10 or 11 months. You're yeah. talking about, so you're talking about up until that point, they're more into generalities. Yes, and I think in general, it takes a long time for a child to learn, you know, there's the, there's the furry animal. You know, first they learn furry animal before they learn kitty, sheep, bunny, 
That's what I mean. And that there are categories of experience that apply in a very general way, which is, I think, one of the things children are kind of learning and playing with. Um, so that they can stay open-ended, yeah. But one thing we know is that memories are not necessarily accurate. That's true. And that memories change as they're needed or not needed. So clinically, if we can get one story from a child about his childhood and told with great detail and specificity, excuse me, specificity about an event, when we talk to the parents, they say it actually didn't happen that way. And one of most, Freud's most moving and I think important papers was on screen memories. I don't know if you're familiar with that, which is the, the adult memory of a childhood event, which has a very specific quality of being very, very clear. And often the person who's remembering this doesn't remember seeing it through his own eyes, but remembers observing it as though he were watching something else happen. And what makes the paper so moving is he talks about his own memory of an important event in childhood and what it, what it means for his adult experience. Um, but I think clinically we see this all the time with kids. I think part of what they remember is what's useful in explaining something right now. Um, I made a mistake, I was mistreated, um, I didn't get something that other kids got, and might not have happened. But it's remembered with absolute clarity. I think that one of the things that we find challenging is finding the expert who actually does really remember the event. Um, and in our longitudinal studies with children, we also involve typically their mothers um, because their mothers are bringing them into the laboratory each time and uh, are willing to participate as a longitudinal participant. And one of the things that's very striking is that is the fragility of adults' memories as well. So sometimes I think we overestimate the extent to which the adult has the right answer sure. um, or the right perspective on the event. And sometimes it's the the, the child whose uh, memory may be more veridical. <laughs> Is not on. on. Mine certainly is. Uh, you understand. <laughs> well, it, that's that, it, that's a, a beautiful question. What do we mean by a memory, and what do we mean by an event? Um, you know, is the event my weekend trip to New York to participate in this wonderful discussion? Um, is the event? picking up this bottle and taking a drink out of it, right? Um, you know, to what extent, where we parse the events is also something that is, we know very little actually about how we parse events. So what's the beginning, the middle of an end of an event? And again, as you sometimes reflect back, it's, oh, that was just the beginning of that relationship. Uh, you know, here I thought it was a chance encounter on the subway or something, you know, but that, it turns out that that was the beginning of, of, an, of, a, of an event. And we don't always know. Well, but with children, that is a key part of what develops their mind. Those experiences, those events, are what is helping develop the mind of that particular child. So Absolutely. It must be, it can't be just limited entities that we can bring out of them. 
Well, the, I think the thing that is important is we know, I mean, even adults talk about memory of an event as if an event happened or there was a specific event or that everybody would see the event in the same way. And one of the signs of maturity, and we're going to talk about children, I mean, one of the, I like to think of it this way, one of the purposes of childhood is to learn how to become an adult. And so as an adult, probably the greatest sign of maturity of the adult mind is the capacity to realize everything is perspectival. I like to say beauty is in the eye of the beholder and so is everything else. That everything is perspective. And the capacity to realize that your perspective is really only one perspective and there's always somebody else's perspective. I mean, in this panel, we could take the same water bottle, I'm sure, and have, you know, whatever number of people there are here, different perspective or even the whole audience. And this is one of the things we're really teaching children, aren't we, is about... A theory of mind, thank you, yes. I, wonder, I, I just feel like uh, telling this uh, thing about a memory that I had myself um, that was sort of like Freud's screen memory, I guess, that I, I, was, uh, uh, I was reading a Babar book to my then very young daughter and uh, came to a page, it was a page with uh, Monkeyville where all the monkeys were climbing rope ladders and living little houses in the trees and I suddenly remembered this same page from when I was very young. Mm -hmm. It's not a memory that I remember going over and over again. It wasn't part of my life. It wasn't really an important thing. But I suddenly was seeing this thing that I had seen as a kid and boy, was it different. And I was seeing almost a double exposure of two different pictures on the same page. I was really very disappointed with the, the current one. <laughs> There was so much detail and fantastic imagery yeah. in the other one. So, um, you know, the, the, the memory, even memory of an image, I mean, it's a creative act. Yeah. It must it? have yeah. been important to you in some way you didn't realize. I loved it. And then it. the real thing wasn't, wasn't so great. But to just take an ordinary example that everyone has been through, a kid will say he was screamed at by a teacher. Yes. And he still hears the reverberating screaming if you actually hang around the school, I mean, the teacher won't tell the truth, obviously, so you can't ask. <laughs> but if there's somebody else who happened to have been in the room, they can say the teacher was angry, but wasn't screaming. Or when it happens in your own house, we all know as parents we never scream. But uh, kids, what kids remember is screaming. They remember horrible violence where there was none. Um, and I think this has to do with their conscience. It's not necessarily a co about cognitive structure. It's that in, er in what we call early latency from, say, seven to ten years old, kids have a very primitive conscience. They, they're very afraid of doing something wrong and getting hurt and being in trouble. And they perceive the world partly that way. So that every time they do something wrong, you know, mom is going to kill me now. Mm -hmm. And on some level, they actually mean kill. Yeah. And they might remember it that way and remember that for the rest of their lives. So we have to be very suspicious of reports that we get. Of course this is true with adults as well, but it's more true in different ways at different phases of child development. That the, what preoccupies a kid at a certain stage in life is going to influence what he or she actually experiences. We all know that. If we're in a terrible mood, if something horrible just happened to us, we misperceive what someone else said. 
but it's much more true in kids because they have so much less uh, structure. What about the reverse? I have a lot of parents who have the opposite happen, where they're very upset about what happened to the kid in school. You know, it wasn't fair what the teacher did. And you, and you find out from the kid's vantage point, they don't care about it so much. It wasn't so bad. I assume you have that where the parent is more anxious, in a sense, than even the child is. Is that? Kid said it happens all the time. Yeah, it's not a big yeah, deal. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You could also argue, though, that as we get older, we gain these structures. And if anything, um, those structures render us adults more prone to distort distorting incoming information. Or at the very least, um, I don't think we're, in some sense, moving toward a steady state of objectivity. So you could imagine, for example, the same people listening to the same speech, but they have different political perspectives. I'm pretty sure they will have different memories of the speech, whereas if we took younger children who were less politically biased, they would probably be more uniform. So I don't think it's, you disagree, go ahead. (laughs) I, I think you never get to a stage of objectivity, there's no such thing. Right. But I think kids are more limited because they have more limited minds. Well, I'm saying our, the richness of our intellectual abilities can be seen as an advantage, but it can also be seen as a handicap because it, it, it leads us to assimilate, distort, and reconstruct in ways that a child would be incapable of. So to that extent, um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't celebrate adulthood for, for greater objectivity. Far from it. I, give me a child any time in terms of objectivity. Well, one, these, I mean, I, I, you, you probably know more about this than I do about language, but one, I had been in this very large interdisciplinary group that met every week in my office for about 20 years, a group of like people like this group, and we just talked about stuff like this. And there was a linguist there, and what they were telling me was that one of the reasons that children can learn language so much better than adults is because their minds are different. And kids are really tuned into what's, you know, where's Waldo, basically. Um, children are much more tuned into what doesn't fit, what's different, because their brains are constantly preoccupied with regularities. That's why they like to repeat things over and over and over again. They're very tuned into what's different. And they're more likely to be able to walk into a room and notice that something's different. And I think that may have something to do with why they may be more accurate. We've had so many experiences that our brains fill in things, that they haven't had those experiences. So we're less accurate often because our minds just fill in. We scan the room and we don't pay that much attention. And if, uh, you know... We might not see that you know your wife had a new haircut or whatever. Um, whereas a child will hone in on it because that's what, that's what Temple Grandin talks about autistic people and yes, animals. Having yes, that yes, yes, too. yes, 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 yes. Well, that, mm-hmm. I think that that's something to keep in mind is it's that's probably as much an individual difference as it is a developmental one. Mm-hmm. There's actually a reasonably large body of literature on children's memory for the atypical action or for something that doesn't belong in a room mm-hmm. or happened out of order um, as usual, and they 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 are quite 
able to detect those aberrant or the, those discrepant um, events and experiences. So it may be that um, that uh, bringing up a, um, a temple as a is, is a very good example that it is probably as much an individual difference as it is a developmental one. Might we also be talking about the discrepancies between the cognitive capacities and the interpretations mm -hmm. that either the adult or child makes mm -hmm. Answered. Oh, can you so, so can you repeat that? No, just saying that there, uh, there. you know, perhaps we're talking about the difference between the cognitive dimensions and the emotional ones in terms of the child's perceptual abilities, but what interpretations the child brings to that based on their So it's back to the story. Back to the story. Yes, indeed. I think what Rob is saying to your point where you say you prefer the child's. <laughs> the child's interpretation at the age of two of something. The, the, the child's interpretation of something may have no relationship to the actual occurrence. So when you say you will trust that more, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. You say this from your point of view, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course, I'm being slightly provocative, but. Um, <laughs> Just slightly. <laughs> but it, it does seem to me, I, I would still like to defend the point that we shouldn't assume that there's a steady progress toward objectivity, even if we never meet it or get there, I would say there may be a steady progress away from objectivity as we, as we gradually erect these elaborate ideologies and value systems which, which, through which we filter what people are telling us. I think we, we see this all the time when we're looking across cultures. So as adults, when we're encountering situations from another culture, it's very hard for us to interpret it in the way that people steeped in that culture will interpret it. That's something we see all the time, even within you know, di slightly different cultures that speak nominally the same language. You'll have the same expression will be taken to mean different things yes. by different people. And it's okay. very hard to overcome that. And so consistent with what Paul's saying, children are less bound by that, but they may not be able to make, they're pro probably missing an awful lot that adults are putting in, taking from this in different ways. But the reason they're missing an awful lot is they don't understand a lot. You know, anyone who's studied cognitive development in children comes up with the same findings, that there's a steady change from a fantasy understanding of the world where there's no cause and effect, there's no sense of time, and the world revolves around me, to beginning to understand that there's a difference between wishing something to, is going to happen and having it happen, having a thought versus acting, I don't, I don't and fantasy. I you don't think, think so? That the, no, I think that what you see in cognitive development these days is when you're looking at all the different individual pieces, yeah. the, the evidence that all of those pieces are there, you can see that very, very early. And children are quite precocious, but the hard thing is putting them together into this narrative to pick out from a much more complex situation what are the different motives going on, what, what are the different agents doing. The different, the different pieces are all there very early. That's, that's my read of... But what about findings. the phenomenon that children will insist that something is true because they want it to be true, and it, it can't be? You know, which we, we don't consider kids who say that to be liars. You know, lying... You can only lie if you know the difference between 
what's true and what isn't. So at that point, we say the child said something that isn't true, or the child took something that didn't belong to him. They have to be older before we can say the kid is a liar and a thief, right? I don't, I don't quite know how to conceptualize this, but um, and I don't, so I don't know how to sum up the difference, but as Colin is saying, you know, all of the, the laboratory research, yeah. the empirical literature on infant development um, is really quite of one voice, that yeah. children have what will be referred to as, or infants, have what will be referred to as a very sophisticated understanding of causality. They know that in order for this to cause this to move, they have to actually make contact with one another. And if this just comes and stops, and then this starts on its own, that's not a cause. So they, they have these understandings. Uh, Paul referred earlier to the, the, the perception of the helper versus the hinderer um, in small, in, in these, these um, elemental visual events that are staged for infants. So there's something between that infant perception and the child's declaration of how they're using those bits and pieces of information. But the basic cognitive elements, the basic raw materials are there, are evident very early in infancy. And whether it's the sewing of them together or the contextualization of them in the real world complicated interactions that people have, it's probably both. But I, I, I think it's based on the empirical literature, I don't think it's um, the best characterization to say that it's lacking. It's there in some form. But what's your understanding about why it can't be used until later? If it's Colin? There. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the really hard thing. You know. so it, there's there's a, a very clear contrast. So take famous findings about children's difficulties in reasoning about false beliefs, for example. Yeah. It's very robust and very clear that mm -hmm. even through age four, you're, you're going to have trouble with that. Right. And that's as true as it ever was. What makes it all the more interesting is that now you can demonstrate that is it was it eight-month-olds, 12-month-olds? It, it, it's all in the first year. Yeah, some, <laughs> late in the first year of life, you can show that there are key elements of that that are already in place. That doesn't change the fact that the four-year-olds are still as hapless as they ever were. Right. And so it's something about putting that into use which, and in more complex situations, which is the real challenge. Well, I think that's true throughout development. It's not just in infancy. I mean, you see teenagers. You can measure teenagers' reflective function, and it's as high as adults. <laughs> just they can't use it. <laughs> and or they choose not to. <laughs> they choose not to, but, but, they're, but and it's considered to be somewhat related to brain connectivity because the brain doesn't fully mature until we're in our mid-20s. Mm -hmm. And so... Having a capacity and being able to use it in the appropriate context um, is different, and I think maybe that's a little bit like what you're what you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, and that's um, why kids need so much yeah. scaffolding because the parent provides help with the context of how and when to use whatever those right. skills are right. that they... Right, being able to recognize that, that, that this is a situation where rule one applies yeah. Yeah. and then yeah. being able to execute rule one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both of those are important steps that kids aren't always taking. In children's books, there's, for as long as there's been kind of an industry of children's books, there's been a controversy with, with one side saying children should be exposed to the real world and things that are you know, like their life and other side saying 
there should be fantasy and beautiful, wonderful things, and there are these two uh, um, arguments that don't ever, you know, have a meeting point. But uh, you know, I, I saw a quote that E.B. White, who wrote, uh, mm -hmm. this was, I think, about when he wrote um, Stuart Little, about the little mouse who was yes. born to human parents on 14th Street. And, uh, <laughs> and he said something like, uh, little children, uh, jump over the fence that separates uh, reality from make-believe like little spring box. He said, uh, the, the fence that will throw a librarian is as nothing to children. As nothing to children. That's a great, that's, 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 that's lovely, yeah, that's lovely. Well, I'm sympathetic with Stephen, though, because this, in reality, is what you see in kids. And whatever the discrepancy is between the research and the actuality, because this is really so much a part of what, well, Certainly analysts are teaching kids when they, who have real troubles with this, but I mean, obviously this is also the role of the parent is to help the child make those distinctions and to... Uh, well, one of the things we talk about is the difference between hot cognition and cold cognition. Um, so hot cognition is in the moment when your sibling is stealing your toy or, or, or you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar, you got caught lying, right? And, and that, that we may be we may reason differently in that kind of a hot situation than we do in the laboratory where everything else, every other possible source of variance is, is taken out. The, the room is draped in a black cloth so that the infant won't be turning her attention over here where she's not supposed to be. She's only looking at the stimulus, right? The sound is controlled. Everything is controlled. And so part of it is that embeddedness in this rich world in which we live and the complications that arise when you're not the only actor, when there are other actors and each one of them is contributing something. Um, and I think it makes it that, that alone makes it more challenging to bring out those pure rules that you know or that reasoning. Right. So that in, in that way, those types of experiments, they're like stories. So like sto stories strip away a lot of the irrelevant stuff. What makes mystery movies hard is that they deliberately throw in lots of irrelevant stuff to th mm -hmm. throw you off. Mm -hmm. And life is more like that. Um, <laughs> and, and an experiment with a very young child like a story is something that pulls out all the distracting stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Can I ask a, a broader question, particularly of the two uh, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts? So, um, I mean, if I look back over the last 20 or 30 years in developmental psychology and to some extent developmental psycholinguistics, you see a, a, an increasing acknowledgement, as we've been saying, of the the really competent, uh, the competence of the infant, whether it's with respect to the understanding of cause and effect or social relationships, or even good and evil. Um, and so the, the sort of classic picture of the child being egocentric, confused about fantasy and reality, um, and only slowly in the course of the preschool years conquering that naivety I mean, I think we've moved away from that somewhat negative portrait. Now, having said that, there are all these complications about, well, how to reconcile the child's behavior under these circumstances with the child's behavior under th these other circumstances. But, okay, but nevertheless, there's been a pretty big revolution, and we're much more, we're much more dazzled by what young infants and preschoolers can do. 
But are you saying to me that in psychoanalysis or in psychiatric theory, nothing much has changed? You still, you still assume that there are these ir deep irrationalities, these deep naiveties, these deep tendencies to deny reality. Well, I would say this is back to the question of why is there such a difference between what's found in basic research and what we experience in right. real life. And in clinical work, we deal with the kids the way they present themselves. We don't have the opportunity to study their capacities. So for example, if there's a study that shows that teenagers have the same abilities to reason as adults do, nobody would want to live in a world run by teenagers, right? Be because something else gets in the way. I don't want to live in a world run, run by adults, let alone teenagers. That's hard enough. And it's an, it's an idealized version of adults, because most adults don't function on that level either. But there are other, there are other issues that gradually change, right? The kind of self-centeredness and impulsiveness and fear of one's um, impulses that characterize teenagers softens and changes. It might not change 100%, but it gets a little better as people get older and more tired, right? <laughs> but we also see in adolescence people committing themselves to all sorts of ideologies, extreme political movements. We don't see young children doing that. Well, I actually, I think psychoanalysis, fortunately, has embraced all of this science. In fact, psychoanalysis, I mean, you know, Edna Sessian is the, uh, you know, best, one of the best examples of this. Right. And that psychoanalysts are embracing neuroscience, child development, all these, all these factors. But in the, you know, in the environment of real parents helping real kids, um, you discover that you know, children have these just really different ways of thinking about the world, and they need help with it. They need support. You know, when a child thinks you know, the teacher hates him and that the teacher actually really does hate him, if that's the, the child's experience, that child actually really needs a supportive environment to help them see it differently. Does it change the way in which you react to the children's needs? So if, if there's a difference between the capacity not being there and the capacity needing some help to right. make its way through all the other obstacles. Does that, does that have any impact on what you do to help the children or does it, in the end, not make a difference? It's a good question. I, I, haven't, I haven't had that question before, so, but I would hope it would. I would hope it would. I mean, you know, we now know that children are, have this incredible capacity for empathy even, you know, we, we, something we didn't think about before. And so I do think it has influenced um, how we raise children. Uh, if I understand that what, what the discussion is going in the direction of that in a way we've been underestimating how much kids, children, little children, infants, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if the word is understand or are capable of yeah. or are but how much is different? In other words, what's the other side of that? Because obviously children are not the same, are not thinking the same at the age of two as they will at the age of 12. So what is different? What changes or the direction of towards adulthood? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
we could all retire if we knew the answer to that, I think. Um, you know, certainly one of the things that's changing, and this is not to say that this is the only thing that's changing, right? But one of the things that's changing is that children, is that with development, we become experts in more and more areas. We learn more content. And that's one of the things that we can't underestimate the extent to which children have, in some cases, some very maybe sophisticated looking reasoning abilities, but they have much less content over which to use and apply those reasoning abilities. They have many fewer experiences. They don't have the political indoctrination, um, and therefore they don't know the way the political beliefs hold together. Po politics maybe is way too, way too old, but even the politics of the schoolyard. They have, a, they have less understanding of relationships. They have less content over which to apply some of these fundamental cognitive operations. And as I said, that, that's certainly not the only thing that's changing, but it is one of the things that's changing. And we do see that when children are experts in a domain, their reasoning looks more adult-like um, than when they are the novice in the domain. And that's even when the adult may be the novice and the child is the expert. And what you'll see is in that particular domain, the children actually can outperform the adults. You take them out of that and they look just like a kid again. Um, but within that expertise, they're able to use some of these um, higher level, higher order cognitive processes. And the other thing is executive function, I would imagine, would have to play some role in this that, you know, you can have an ability, but if you can't control your impulses enough to be able to display that ability, then I would assume that has some so I, I think maybe you're correcting a misconception of mine. I took my grandson a number of years ago when he was around four years old on the subway. And so we went to the subway and I said we are going to take the express. And he couldn't figure out what's the difference between the subway and the express. So if I understand you correctly, if I had prior to taking him there explained to him that the subway is a train and it has one level, it's local, and then you go down and it's express. That if I had explained to him, he would have understood and would not have asked that question. Whereas I thought he didn't yet have the ability to conceptualize the notion that a subway can be express or local. I think that's, that's, a, very, exact, that's yeah. a very good example. Yeah. Um, and it would, we, could, we could actually do that experiment. That would be a, you know, an easy experiment to do, but I think that's exactly right. It's that, um, that we, we make a lot of assumptions about what other people in our world know, and most of the time we're pretty accurate about that. Um, and it's when we misunderstand what someone knows that communication becomes very challenging. I find, actually, when, you know, I, I do things for little kids, and, uh, and I also go to schools and I talk to them sometimes and, and, uh, and my wife is a retired teacher I mean, she was for a long time not a retired teacher but a teacher and, uh, and she would help me out a lot of times on um, if I was going to say this or had done something in a book or, or with kids and she'd say well you said this but they thought that and, and it was the most difficult and interesting thing for me to learn what was what, what I wasn't thinking through what I was assuming that that kids just didn't have the 
content knowledge to know about. But, uh, and, and that's sort of one of the most difficult things of, about, or, or specialized maybe things about being an adult dealing with children is realizing what it is that you should know they don't know. How they're going to misinterpret obvious things that you say in some creative way. This sort of thing happens all the time. So I can give just one example. This is something I happened in, at home yesterday. Um, so when there are, we can take lots of verbs that talk about different things we do. Um, and you know, you you can you know hit the table or you can um, read a book. Um, and you know, eat is also a transitive verb. But you can say I ate, mm -hmm. right? But when you say I ate, it doesn't just mean you ate something, right? It means you ate something appropriate to a meal time, right? So yesterday, my daughter, who's 13, came home from playing with her friends, and um, my wife said, um, did you eat yet? And she said, uh, pretzels. <laughs> and I was very impressed with that, because what that showed is the understanding that to say yes to that would imply the declaration that she had eaten an appropriate to a meal, and she recognized that pretzels wasn't. And in that dialogue, yeah. you know, yeah. that showed a kind of sophistication that we normally take for granted, but mm -hmm. things like that are buried in everything we do. It's yeah. <laughs> a great example. Did you ask her when she last, when she, if she took a shower? <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And it also shows a sophisticated level of reflective thinking because it implies that your, your wife understood what she meant by pretzel yeah. and that she knew her mother would understand. So in that brief communication, they had an amazing amount of understanding of how the other person would perceive what they're doing. And that's what makes things so hard for younger children. So. Understanding literally what was expressed there wouldn't get you anywhere. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the problem that you have with young children is they can, in some ways, they're very sophisticated in terms of what they know about what are possible things to say, but all of the additional things that go into understanding the motives of what is said and what is not said, that's the sort of thing which, where kids seem not to be that precocious. Yes. Oh, okay. And it's well, because that's of. It's good to know that. Yes. That's, I think that, that helps some of this discrepancy. They don't understand the motives. They're a lot more literal. That or comes concrete. step by step. There are different parts of it. You can show, again, you can show that some of those abilities are there um, mm -hmm. if you put people in the kids in the appropriate setting. But we do this all the time, very quickly, without even realizing what we're doing. And that's where there's huge opportunities for misunderstanding. Yes. Yes. So I have. A, a related example of this which is that from time to time when my children's friends have come over I've, I've indulged in an ironic remark since you and I are English we know we are tempted to do this from time to time <laughs> and uh, my youngest sons turn to their friends and say oh, you know, he's just, don't worry he's trying to be funny he's just trying to be ironic <laughs> so yes but you know, the feeling is mutual. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what the structure of this roundtable was going to be, so I've been collecting children's jokes for the last few weeks in a, in a very scientific way, interrupting sessions and making it seem like it was part of the session to say, what's your favorite joke? And I made a long list of these at children at different ages, and they're very different and they're very predictable at which ages certain things are very funny, and they change over time. 
I'm not going to tell any of them because none of them are funny <laughs> to an adult. <laughs> But these kids... Some of the more useful among us, maybe. <laughs> well, the idea that, that there could be a premise that there's somebody named Ha 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 standing next to his friend whose, whose name is Oh Shut Up and another friend saying Who Cares and a policeman just happens to interview them right, right, is right. not something that I would ever tell at a cocktail party. I think it's funny. Yeah. Sure. Language. What, what about it? It's, it's, it's very rich. Um, a lot of things happen very quickly. Um, children have figured out, by the, by the time they're 12 months of age, they've figured out the sound system of their language. They're, they're very good at distinguishing speakers of different languages. They've, they're acquiring a vocabulary. By the time they're age three, they've figured out most of the word order properties of the language. They have a vocabulary in the hundreds. By the time they're age five, they're, doing, they're outperforming technologies that Google and Apple have spent billions on. Um, and yet, putting that to use in complex interactive situations, that's the thing that's hard. So what we find, it's, it's in interesting what often when you look at kids who are delayed, um, so the, the ch children's, language development seems to be ahead of much of the rest of their cognitive development in the sense that a lot of the things that count as cognitively sophisticated develop later than things that count as linguistically sophisticated. Um, so you can look at um, some populations, so uh, um, uh, rare but um, very interesting cases, the uh, syndrome known as Williams syndrome, Williams. right? Which For a long time, they were thought to be severely cognitively impaired and linguistically precocious. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that's not really true on closer inspection. Really, their language is more or less consistent with their, the rest of their cognitive development in most respects. It's just that language development is so accelerated that if you put it in the context of cognitive delay, you still look linguistically quite good. Mm. Although, going back to what you were saying earlier, um, is it fair to say that even if the grammar and the semantics is rich and complicated, the pragmatics is, yes. takes a lot longer to be mastered? I, th I think that's, that's the, a, a clear consensus on what, where things are right now, is right. The, the things which involve relatively formal routines, children have got that quite very well. Things involving building a large vocabulary, things invo involved in building literal interpretations, they're great. But the pragmatics, which plays such a role in what we do most of the time, that takes a long while because in order to learn the pragmatics, you need an awful lot of other things. Mm -hmm. You can learn a lot about language without being that cognitively developed, mm -hmm. but to get the rest of it, you need the rest of the structure to be in place. Right. So, but Just to go back to young babies again, I've been recently really impressed by some work, a lot of it going on again in New York, where uh, there are two, there's, a, there's an infant watching two adults, or it could be two cartoon figures, but at any rate, um, the infant is merely a spectator, and the infant sees 
this person, um, for example, showing some preference for a particular object in front of her. Um, and uh, it, it might be out of reach. And this person then vocalizes uh, uh, and the child watches as the other person either responds appropriately by handing her the object she prefers or responds inappropriately by handing her, as it were, the wrong object. But what's amazing about these studies is that these, these 10, 11-month-old infants seem to grasp that how communication works, even at that age. Mm -hmm. So they don't, the, they don't necessarily have any words themselves. Um, it can be indeed a nonsense word that this speaker utters. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the extent to which... So I guess my, put it this way, my working assumption for a long time was that children gradually work out what communication is for insofar as they engage in it. They, dis they discover what, what a handy tool it is, so to speak. But here we see these infants sitting back, being a spectator, a third party, and yet grasping the, the cognitive consequences of the, you know, the information the, the, the audience has received or the interlocutor has received. Right, yeah. So I, mean, I think this, this is another situation where we're seeing that when stripped down to the bare minimum, the there's a capacity that's there. So maybe it's even at the pragmatic level where kids are most delayed, the ingredients of that are in place. Right. Um, I think we need to be a little bit cautious about how we interpret some of these findings about the young babies 10 to 12 months of age. Because what is generally shown there is there is some degree of sensitivity in this carefully designed task. Yeah, they're so they're not behaving randomly. So there's something there. Sure. The way that then gets presented is, kids can do this. Right. And that's a little bit of an overextension. Yeah. And then, yeah. as we know from people who are you know, dealing with kids in real situations, now kids really can't do it, and they can't yeah. do it for much longer. So in the pragmatic domain, even there, some of the things that they need are already in place. But making effective use of those tools is such a knowledge-intensive task that it's going to be very hard to do that in practical situations for a long while after. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think where we, what we haven't got to in the science is so much working on how do we take those basic skills and then work, it, work towards scaling them up to other things. A lot, a lot of the action has been in showing, mm -hmm. wow, kids can do these amazing things. A lot of people have built careers on showing kids are geniuses. Um, and that there, was a, there was a nice piece in The Onion five or six years ago, which had headline, you know, you know newsflash, babies are stupid. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's sort of very informative because, I mean, yes, we know that babies are limited, but there's, you know, you're not going to get much press from saying, by the way, babies aren't very smart. Um, but right. it's figuring out how to, go, how to go from these sort of pieces of uh, genius that they have to putting that to use in practical situation, which is where we are now, um, and that's going to be a long, hard job. And, and one of the problems that we have is that um, we tend to be, at least in the scientific literature, there are people who study infants, and there are people who study children. And that transition, uh, you know, as, as the, the infant becomes a language user, as the infant becomes able to direct her own action and to be, you know, to 
locomote independently and all of those accomplishments, we, we have a dearth of information on what happens in the second and third year of life, basically. You have the infant studies where the baby will sit and watch, right? And then you have the verbal studies where the child can actually be counted upon to listen to an instruction and respond appropriately or not, right? But at least they can listen to the instruction and make a verbal response. And there's that territory in between that is really still not well researched. And therein is going to lie some of the answer to this, these paradoxes of this early competence and later lack of performance, essentially. The nonverbal. I mean, the baby is mostly nonverbal. And so what, what influences do you think that plays on the development or how the infant is experiencing the world? Because I'm thinking about your example, and I'm thinking of, you know, like all the nonverbal cues that would cue anyone into uh, what's going on in that situation. The baby only has the nonverbal, but we go pretty far in our communication with people with nonverbal. So I'm just wondering how much information can be gleaned in that kind of a situation from nonverbal versus verbal. And one of the ways that people have come about that, uh, attacking that very question, is through comparative um, research, where you ask whether capuchin monkey or whether a rhesus monkey or a chimpanzee or a dog. Uh, the, the in, in increasingly we're seeing the literature on, um, on dogs as, as comparative subjects. And that's one of the favored ways that we go about addressing those questions because there you don't have even that latent capacity for language um, that you're considering. Um, and some of these abilities, I don't actually don't know if the helper hinderer has been done with a non-human primate. Do you know, Me Paul? Neither. Me neither. Yeah. I don't know if it's been done, um, but my, my guess is that people's family pets, in some cases, might uh, you know, be able to solve some of these problems based on exactly you know, some of that sensitivity mm -hmm. to uh, where people are looking, you know, dogs do um, uh, joint reference where um, if I look at this and then look at you, right, to see if you're sharing yeah. mm -hmm. that reference and d people's pets, dogs, will, do, will solve that task. And that's obviously critical for understanding these kinds of interpersonal situations of what the person wants or is trying to accomplish. Mm. Um, if you don't have that component ability of being able to understand that this is the object for both of us, mm -hmm. um, you're not going to be able to solve that problem. So I, I actually don't know what the comparative literature says, but that's one way that people have tried to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, pursuing that theme then, the comparative evidence I think is certainly setting aside dogs since they're a somewhat <laughs> special <laughs> case. They you know, they, they've lived in human society and been selected within human society mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. a long time. So if we take chimpanzees, I mean, one of the differences, I think, important differences between chimpanzees and human beings is that chimpanzees don't really point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. point, I mean, in some sense, you could argue that pointing is the very first stepping stone to something like ordinary communication among mm -hmm. human beings because, mm -hmm. yeah, you can as you were saying, mm -hmm. 
use pointing to converge on the same object or to call somebody's attention to something or even sometimes to ask a kind of question. I mean, you can mm-hmm. point to yeah. something in an, in, in an interrogative fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's the beginning of at least whether the baby has the capacity before pointing or not, but at least the first demonstration that the baby shows us that they have some... Baby what? Sorry, no, just the baby points. The baby points, mm-hmm. the mother points, mm-hmm. but that they are each pointing about something that's in their mind. Mm-hmm. They have an intention, they've seen something, and then they have an intention to share what they've seen. I mean, that's it's, my it's understanding. The, it's the simplest story. It's the simplest story. <laughs> okay, right? yeah. It's, it's, it's organizing the experience that's around you and saying, yeah. okay, it's about this. Yes, it's about this, right. And, but and I want you to pay attention to what the aboutness is for me. I mean, I think that's the joint... Mm-hmm. The joint part, yeah. So there's some fascinating work published recently on cross-cultural variation in pointing. So they did a study in China, the Netherlands, and a, and a Mayan community in, in South America. And um, all they did was to ask um, the adult to carry the toddler into a room with various interesting things hanging to look at, so to speak. Um, and they looked at the frequency with which the infant pointed to these items or indeed the caregiver pointed to these items. And um, the most active pointers were the Chinese caregivers, followed by the Dutch, followed by the Mayans. So I don't know whether these were these were dedicated grandparents with one particular grandchild to <laughs> focus all their attention on. But at any rate, they were, they were up and running, so to speak, uh, earlier than, than, than the Dutch and than the mine group. You know. Does it correspond to any observable difference in how the children develop? Well, it does. So there's good evidence that early pointers build their vocabulary more rapidly. So there's a headline there. Excuse me? There's a headline there. there. Yeah. Yeah. The Chinese are ahead of us, right? Point, point to your infant. <laughs> oh, God. Or that early vocabulary developers are better pointers. Or that early vocabularies yeah. are better pointers. Yeah. Right. Although, so we'll know soon, because a, a colleague of ours is, a, is carrying out an intervention study um, where she's encouraging mothers to point more often. Uh, yeah. And so we'll see whether that has a knock-on effect with respect to later language development. Yeah. So little uh, b- books for very, very young children are often... Uh, wordless books are supposed to be for the youngest children, which I, it just seems to be appropriate to this discussion. Um, you don't get wordless books for older people very much. And yet, I mean, there is language in the stories they tell. I mean, maybe these books are designed so that people will you know, use language to read the books to children, but they do go through them and find thing, thing, thing. And, and, and also the uh, very youngest board books that are made for children, um, they, they tend to discourage there being too much story in them, and often they're just this thing, then this thing, then this thing. Maybe the final thing has some uh, ironic relation to the rest of them, probably so that the parent can have some relief <laughs> by the end of this. Of these seven, eight things, but I just thought maybe that's something to to throw in there. Interesting. Yeah. Can children do they tell the stories without the picture and without words? Without words, yeah. Well, although if this this research on you know spotting 
helpers and hinderers is correct, the implication is that you could have a little figure uh, pushing somebody up the mountain on one page and uh, having a, sm you know, a, a smile of triumph on the next page. And in some sense, the implication is the infant would be understanding it. And then you, conversely, you could have a, a villain who comes along and pushes them both back down again. And mm -hmm. So anyway, these, it's, it's possible that these publishers are underestimating the story comprehending capacities of one-year-olds. I don't know. <laughs> we, all, we all understand facial expressions from very early, don't we? Yes. yes. What we know is that babies differentiate facial yes. expressions. Yes. It's actually been very difficult to get evidence that they actually understand them. Um, so from a very young age, babies will look preferentially at a happy face as opposed to a frowning face or an angry face. Um, but it's really not necessarily clear that they understand the implication behind that. Are you saying that... Yep. that it may be that it's likely that they don't or that we just can't figure out a way to talk to them so that they can explain We've it adequately. We've been very clever about asking the questions and I think we still don't know that they really understand the implications of those emotions. Until they are about nine months of age, there it's very, very clear that they're understanding a wary look on an adult's face or a happy smiling face. They'll approach things, uh, you know, an, a, a novel object. Um, if I smile at the baby, the baby will come and approach that object. If I do this and look very afraid, the baby won't um, approach the object or across the room or, or the, you, this can also be done with other people so if I make a you know an angry face at you or something and there's a baby then she will not befriend you uh, whereas but if I uh, but at, at nine months it's very clear earlier than that it's uh, it's much less clear but, but even this evidence is sort of black and white I mean black and white in the sense that the baby thinks oh this is a an approachable person or an approachable mm -hmm. object or let me stay away so mm -hmm. so it's not very differentiated this emotional lexicon right. that's true mm -hmm. right. right of course there's some people who never learn to do that well that's true right, there right. and that's they're a clinical population mm -hmm. and they don't recognize facial expressions mm -hmm. or they don't know how to interpret them and they have to learn verbally how to figure it out and so so that raises an interesting question because if you look at a lot of emotion research in psychology, it's been hung up on facial expressions, mm -hmm. in my opinion, rather mm -hmm. too narrowly. So I could imagine a person who did have that, that facial problem, so yeah. to speak, but nevertheless, um, setting that aside, had a pretty good conceptual understanding of what, what particular emotions were like, their consequences, and so on and so forth. Or is that not the case, that you have to have that decoding ability in order to build up the conceptual understanding. It might be an intellectual understanding, but it can't be used in real life. And they have to be taught how to use it, which is something that we seem to be going back to over and over again in this discussion, that the, yes. the capacities can be identified. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, why aren't they put to use more naturally? There are, there are kids and adults who always get it wrong. And it's a very dangerous thing if you don't know whether someone's angry at you or whether right. someone's cheating you. Right. Can they pick, up, pick it up through other cues? They have to be taught. It doesn't come naturally. But is it that they, can they be taught to get it through faces? 
People try to do it. I don't know how successful it is. Uh -huh. do, do these expressions appear on their faces? Somebody they have facial expressions. Yeah, so but they, can't they, they just can't remember state. the association even on their own face. No, it's a disability. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's true of it's many true. autistic children. Well, this, this is where that whole mirror neuron system kind of becomes relevant, that we have the system of matching. Uh, we match the, uh, particularly facial expressions, but we match behaviors. And, it's, and the matching system happens right from birth, pretty much, where, you know, when the mother makes a, a kind of pursing of her lips, the baby will match that. And this expands and, uh, you know, to facial expressions. But what happens is our own body is connected to our whole body physiology. So my facial expression is just the outward manifestation of some emotion I'm feeling, unless I'm deceiving you. And so that body physiology is connected to that facial expression. And the brain seems to be wired to match those facial expressions in others. So theoretically, at least, you're having some physiologic inner experience when you have that facial expression. And when my body matches that in you, it starts to activate my body physiology. And that's how you transmit to me in some way that you're having that feeling, then I know you're having that feeling, and it's the beginning of learning about the connection between the face and the body and the emotion and the feeling. And people with, you know, people with autism have some kind of impairments in their mirror neuron system, and so they lack some of that linkage. And other disabilities as well. And other disabilities. It's not right. just autism, no, but no, autism no, is no, the no. sort of clearest example of that. Yeah. When my first son was born, being a developmental psychologist, he was, I mean, within two minutes, I tried a little experiment, which was to stick out my tongue. Yeah. And he thought about it. And, <laughs> but then he did stick out his tongue. But then I panicked because he wouldn't put his tongue back in again. <laughs> You've broken him. <laughs> Psychoanalysis would cure it eventually. <laughs> he eventually did, I may say. <laughs> but go, I mean, going back to your point, I'm not sh I would hesitate to say that we always figure out the meaning of somebody's facial expression by resonating in some sense to it. It seems to me we could also have, I mean, I, I would be tempted to say we we would want to understand that somebody was angry without necessarily feeling some minimal anger ourselves, our, ourselves or, or ditto for sadness and, or, or fears. And I, so let's, so here's, actually here's some good evidence. So we were talking about empathy a moment ago. And you do see in the second year of life uh, toddlers being quite empathic. So if a, even a parent or a sibling is in distress, they will sometimes go over and pat and hug. Um, but you don't necessarily see them showing distress themselves. It's as if they recognize what the distress is, but it doesn't require some kind of mirroring of the distress in order for them to behave appropriately. I, I think the excitement about this notion of mirror neurons has in some ways been an impediment to understanding because I think one thing that is important is understanding connections between things you're seeing out in the world, how that relates to things that you do. That's obviously very, very important. People went crazy with the idea that there are these little cells that 
solve the problem. And, and the message that I think we've got through all of this discussion is making all these connections is much more complicated. Yes, yes. And putting the blame on just, the, you know, there's, there's some, you know, little tiny piece that suddenly solves that trivializes the problem, I, th I think, and probably stands in the way of figuring out all the complicated things you actually have to do yes, to do this I successfully. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's the harder part. I mean, the, the, the notion that you have things that are shared between, for example, speaking and understanding, right? Well, we've, we've known about that for thousands of years. That's called words, right? A word is something which is the, the link between things you say and things you understand. And what we're talking about in all these other domains is, you know, you need to understand the connections between things you experience and things you do, and, and, it's, and it's kind of hard. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it's, it, there's, there's not a single, single piece solution. So if it's okay with you, I'll ask the audience for questions. Won't record. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> it's going to turn out not to be worthy of having come up here to use the microphone. Uh, so I'd better think of something really significant to say now that I'm standing here. Uh, I've been a teacher for 52 years in the same school, so mm. students have memories of me that go back more than half a century. <laughs> and I'm often stopped in the deli or on the subway by a student who will say to me, I'll never forget the day that you... And I stop them, and I say, before you recall this memory to me, was I crazy that day, or did I say something <laughs> significant? Only once did a student say, I'll never forget the day that you stood me up in front of the class and embarrassed me. And that was a student of 52 years ago, and she'd been waiting 52 years to see me. <laughs> Most of the other times, I've come out pretty good. But I have occasion to, to speak to teachers, especially graduate students in, in schools of education, and I tell them, you get a group of students in your room, they close the door, they let you alone with them for 40 minutes, and you are creating memories that can live a lifetime. And you will forget those experiences, but you'll be amazed at how many times you will be remi reminded of something you said or did that you've forgotten decades ago, but have lived on in the memory of somebody else. Scary. The other thing I want to say about um, <laughs> the kid who goes home and says, the teacher yelled at me and threw me out of the room. When the teacher reprimanded that student in a mild voice and then just opened the door and said, I think you'd better go out because you're disturbing the class. Isn't it to the students, the child's advantage, not so much to remember the experience that way, but to relate it with that exaggeration because it then paints the picture of the student as an innocent victim of a, a crazy monster of a teacher and takes the emphasis off what the kid did to I'm the victim of this brutal monster. And since I have the microphone, there's one more thing I want to say. You talk so much about amnesia, and I wonder if we're living through a different age now because every parent and grandparent mm -hmm. has a cell phone which is a high quality video camera mm -hmm. and is constantly recorded recording every second of a child's in my day i'm sure that there are so many people in this room of a certain age 
who have very few snapshots of themselves as children, let alone videos. And if the videos were on 8mm film, they were black and white and silent. But now everything is being recorded constantly. So more than at any time in the history of humanity. So does that take the place of the need for memory? Do you really have to remember anything if anything is re- if everything is recorded and instantly played backable? And then when you see it years later, it's not so much that you remember being there and doing that and saying that, as that you have concrete proof that it happened because you're watching the recording of it. So that's what I have to say. I actually, thank you so much for that. I actually think that we are creating a society, of probably a world, of people who are going to have fewer memories for exactly this reason. It's going to be more and more difficult to be able to separate what is your memory, what is your internal recollection and your internal representation of that event relative to the thing that you saw in this disembodied, this little rectangle um, that you carry around. I actually think it's going to have... Yes. I think we're destroying our culture, frankly, with, you know, with all this. But, but uh, I think it's going to be more and more difficult to separate but, what is my memory from what is an external representation of that event. But when people started writing letters, couldn't there be a similar form of anxiety about the extent to which, you know, narrating some experience to your family members interfered with the pristine memory you had had before you started writing the I think possibly the difference there is that that's your output. So when I'm writing a letter, Uh I'm writing about my own internal representation as opposed to looking at something that is physically separate from me and then there are these actors in it and one of those actors is me. I think think it's a different... I think Although, it's a different representation, and therefore I think it will have different implications. But it's a great question. I mean, the, yeah. the opportunities to rewrite what happened are so great when you can... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you can Photoshop. I don't remember exactly, but I, I remember hearing or reading about that exact anxiety when writing came into existence, that it would destroy... Uh-huh. You know, uh, Homer, you, know, you would memorize the entire Odyssey, mm-hmm. uh, and now you don't have to anymore, and, and culture will... You know, crumble, and maybe it did. But I, I do think right. that that was, that was an brought up. Yes, that's interesting. But I think memory has an important emotional function. Mm-hmm. You know, almost every parent who comes to me with a child who's having trouble says, "I never ever spoke that way to my parents." <laughs> I'm not so sure they didn't. <laughs> and I had occasion a few years ago to see some old home movies of my early childhood with my sisters. And I think the three of us would swear that the things that we saw in that film could never have happened. I certainly never treated my sisters the way these fake movies show me. That's great. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm getting back to early childhood education myself at a time where people my age would be retiring, so... I've been struggling to try to figure out, you know, how an adult functions, you know, for a lifetime. Because I was taught to be infantilized, you know, that's the secret to success. But anyway, I'd just like to share, first of all, I have a little video on YouTube 
called No Adults Left Behind, <laughs> where I have five-year-olds who live on 200th Street who talk about life with more understanding than adults. What makes you happy, sad? Why do people lie, cheat, and fight? But the five-year-olds answered, you know, and I asked them, if you, what would your gift to the world be? Five-year-olds were able to say, my gift to the world would be everybody should share, people should help each other, be friends, get along together. A little girl looked very sad. Everybody should stop fighting. So five-year-olds can manage to put it together. It's the emperor's new clothes, the child is the father of the man, things like that. Also creating a, my educational launch, it's called Eye Openers and Mind Openers to help kids with attention learning disabilities build their ability to focus and pay attention naturally by doing vision-based eye exercises. So this other thing, the developing brain, which is still new to you know, the fathers of compulsory education and all of that, like, for instance, Oliver Sacks, you know, in his book, Seeing Voices, it's all about children who are brought up. A lot of deaf parents have normal hearing children. Mm -hmm. But they learn sign language first, which is a more natural way. Our ancestors learned sign language before we learned to talk. So when children have been developed, trained that way, he says, it's also laying down the neural pathways with which language, its syntax, is based in your head. And four-year-olds are outperforming high school students in spatial relationship tests. So it's the natural way the brain is put together. And then somebody, you know, like, you know who Alice Miller is, right? She said, emotion attaches meaning to experience the drama of the gifted child. Without an emotion, nothing means anything. So hardly anything was saying that you cannot literally create any meaning or sense without adding emotion to the situation. And with the, I'll just let... And with the vision-based work that I'm doing, believe it or not, in a state of nature, our brains evolve. You can't see without moving your eyes. So a human brain is capable of being aware of seven streams of awareness simultaneously. Because ironically, when we read and write all our lives, we lock up our eyes on static letters, don't move our eyes, and we, like, dumb down our awareness by almost six to seven hundred percent. So seven, when you hear some of these things, that we're talking about a seven-point awareness and that this focus on reading and writing because our aunt, you know, had no idea what the brain was capable of doing. I mean, Descartes literally thought the brain was a place in your head where your sperm was stored. I mean, that's the father of enlightenment, how. But anyway, when you hear some of these things about human potentiality, this four-year-olds outperforming high school students, seven-point awareness, and maybe a, uh, a responsibility that people like you who know understanding might have a certain responsibility to bring some of these ideas into compulsory everyday education besides STEM and STEAM and core, you know. Okay, but I'm just, when you hear these things about human potentiality, these greater awarenesses, I'm just curious, how do you respond where the child is developing it and has it naturally and so much of education is about how to eliminate it because we're following a, you know, a 200-year-old model of, okay, thank you. Thank you. Well, I actually think um, we, I work with schools a lot. And I have to say, I think some of these ideas are really getting incorporated into schools. Maybe not some of the struggling pu public schools so much, but there's a lot of private schools. Charter schools are popping up all over in Los Angeles, anyhow, and um, are incorporating that Children have an enormous capacity for learning um, if, you let, if you follow their lead, if you let them learn what interests them. And the other 
thing that really seems to enhance learning is being able to actively participate in the learning process. So instead of just, and I think some of this is even happening in the public schools in Los Angeles, instead of just teaching chemistry, the kids are really engaging in active learning. And so I think a lot of the ideas about what is enhancing learning for kids is actually being incorporated. I don't think we're as stuck as you are presenting it. I think financial limitations are what keeping people stuck rather than any kind of philosophical there's, or there's educational bias. There's maybe more bias. than financial limitations, which is old farts are getting in the way as well because farts, yeah. you, you can have children learn those things successfully and learn how to be effective learners, but then when people come along and say, well, tell me, what, tell me which things you know, and finding that you know, children who are effective learners, they can, they're equipped to acquire new information effectively to discover new things throughout life if they don't meet certain expectations yeah. that were established. Like, like tests. Like tests, like facts, <laughs> right? Um, like things you can Google. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> then they're deemed to be failing. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, I'm making a movie about what parents ought to be doing for their kids right now to um, have them ready to respond to the world of tomorrow, particularly vis-a-vis -vis climate change. Um, and we sort of have taken as our premise that the world's <coughs> going to be changing fast and that kids have to adapt to things that they can't necessarily see or observe in very sort of altruistic and synthetic and complicated ways involving working with other human beings. Um, so my question to you guys would be, what do you think parents and grandparents ought to be doing with their kids right now to help them develop those kinds of skills? Yeah. What do you do with your kids with, to help with, them ready with, to get ready for the world of tomorrow, basically? If you could really know, depend on, on your ability to inculcate you know, uh, values and th you know, ideas that will last past adolescence and past the point where politics enters into and, and they all, everybody changes and becomes horrible as adults, that would be great maybe. And I, I'm afraid of, of <clears throat> too much terrifying children <clears throat> with the, the destruction of the world to come and the fact, the idea that they were have, would have any responsibility for it and that if, the idea that you should do something to fix it uh, may be very nice, but part of that is the idea that if you don't do it, it won't be get fixed and you're responsible for it. That, that, that's the, the element of, of this whole uh, bringing. Um, we must fix climate change to children. I, I, I think it's so much an issue for the adults who are in control of the world to fix uh, and that it's outside of the power of children to actually do something about it. And when you have them do small things that make them feel like they're doing something about it, that might be nice, but it, to me that doesn't really answer it. You know, it's a really good question because I think it's something every parent cares about, um, whether it be what religion I'd like my child to have, or for me it was wanting my children to read, be good readers, and this is a value. I think the best thing for parents to do is be that way themselves. I don't think we can teach someone else what to believe. Belief is so personal. You, you're going to really fail if you try to teach someone too much what, what to believe. If you put too much emphasis on it. But if you portray the belief yourself as a, an adult and show the values you have as a person, 
in your actions and how you interact with the world. Children are, they, you know, absorb and internalize a lot of these things. And I think that's the best way, rather than try to inculcate, be it yourself, be authentically that way yourself. I think that would be the most successful way. Um, so for adults to do these things that the, adults can do. And adults can do, right. Change. And right. And the children are participating in that family. If I could just ask you to bear with me for one more second. Though. You talked about hot cognition and cold cognition. So let's say you've inculcated these values, moral courage, standing up for things that you believe in, working with other people, etc. Mm -hmm. um, are there particular things that help people in moments of hot cognition? keep their heads, particular psychological skills? Oh, interesting. Well, one of the ones that was, um, that, it's a great question, and one of the things that was uh, alluded to earlier was executive function, uh, which is this ability to stop and think. Inhibit an action that you were maybe just going to reach out, right? And stopping and thinking about the consequences of your action and reflecting on that action. And although famously adolescence is the period of time during which we, quote, develop executive function, those skills are developing beginning in infancy. Uh, deferring gratification, right? Uh, being able to wait a minute to get a bigger treat uh, as opposed to taking a small treat immediately. That's developing very early on, and that's a very powerful um, cognitive skill that applies in social situations, in cognitive situations, in school settings, in all kinds of interpersonal um, situations, and that ability is something that we can help children uh, develop and appreciate um, and to be more reflective. And that may be something that, um, and that that works even in the in, even in these hot cognition uh, domains. Absolutely. I, just going back to your comment, I, I, I think this is an area where I would like to stop and think. <laughs> That's to say, part of me wants to say yes, you're right. That childhood is a kind of protected space, and the burdens that of adult that adults may have created for future generations shouldn't weigh too heavily upon them. But part of me also wants to say that, you know, maybe we could sometimes underestimate children that way. That's to say they, you, you can educate their thinking about the long-term future and indeed the deep past. We don't need to, we don't need to assume that they live, so to speak, in the here and now all the time. I, I think we would underestimate them, but but I'm torn because I can see that it would be it it could be burdensome, but in some ways it could also be liberating if if one were to give children the sense that you know there's a we're we're part of a species. I mean, put it this way: children growing up in the United States will be exposed to a considerable amount of American history. And it's not a very comprehensive history at that. It's mostly a history of heroism. Well, you could argue that a, a broader picture, both looking backwards and looking forwards, would actually be more valuable than, than that particular curriculum. So anyway, all that to say I have some sympathy with the idea that we might think about just how, um, how much we could expand the child's horizon temporally. But I think a lot of that's already being done. I mean, if you, I don't think that American history, the way it's taught right now, is just about heroism. 
and about how we are always saving the world and better mm -hmm. than everyone else. Certainly in, in the schools my kids have gone to, they're taught that when Columbus discovered America, it wasn't such a good thing right. for the people who are already here. And there's a lot of discussion about that. And I think it's the same thing with climate change. You know, my father-in-law used to say, the world wasn't so great when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. He grew up in the 1930s, right? Mm -hmm. um, there have always been terrible problems. And we try to teach kids what they're, what they're ready to absorb. It has to be different at every stage of development. So I think the easiest thing is to, to live what you believe in, and, and kids will pick up what they can. Mm -hmm. But it, every child is going to have to deal with sex sooner or later. And we don't teach them, we don't give sex education in kindergarten, and we don't wait till they're in high school. I mean, it's, they're taught at their own capacity to take in what they can take in. And I think it's, whether it's, it's sex or racism or the nuclear threat or how to pay your taxes, you know, kids have to learn at a certain age. The reason I say how to pay your taxes is because I had a kid come in and his chief complaint was he was something like seven or eight years old and he didn't know how to drive a car or pay, pay his taxes yet. And the idea that that can come later, that he shouldn't worry that he doesn't know how to do it now, was foreign to him. So I don't think we should be scaring kids with things that they are not ready to absorb, but that doesn't mean we can't adjust what we talk about to where they are cognitively and emotionally. I think this circles back to the uh, origins of our discussion about storytelling, because it's in, it's in the telling and retelling of the childhood stories that children gain a capacity for uh, trial action and understanding the world. You know, I, when you were talking about Stuart Little, I was thinking back to my encounter with it and how much it meant to me when I was a little boy that here was this little mouse who couldn't be like a big adult and yet was able eventually to go out into the world in his toy car and you know this is this is this is what stories for children help them construct a a future so you know i, I don't know that we necessarily have to be doctrinaire about the kinds of stories but we if we tell enough stories it covers a lot of ground in anticipation stories of will form whether you, whether you try to tell them or not yes, they will yes. form yes everything can become a story yes. When you were talking about stories without words, you know, the cartoons without words, I think probably most of you know this very beautiful wordless video for very young children called The Snowman that a child of one and a half can already fully appreciate. And um, the other thing is the historical thing about, about reading and writing and worries about memory. Of course, people were worried about it and rightfully worried. I mean, I think it's been shown, or at least I've read, that in non-literate cultures, people do have much better memories. Anyway, uh, my question is, is really to you about, about amnesia. Um, um, some of you talked about amnesia in the first two years of life, and it could be even longer. But is it full amnesia? I mean, are you talking about event memory or representational memory, or are you talking about emotional memory? 
Well, that's, that's a very interesting question because we don't have amnesia for everything in the first years of our lives. We learn to talk, we learn to walk, we learn yes. to recognize our caregivers, right? We, and, we, and, to, and to care about our caregivers. We remember a, a great deal from the early years of life. What characterizes the prototypical case of childhood amnesia or infantile amnesia is that we do not have any memories that of, of ourselves of personally relevant or significant events. So they're really event memories. And the way it's been defined in the literature is unfortunate in many respects because the question will be an event that happened at one time in one place that you can absolutely identify the age at which that event occurred. And of course, most, for most of us, our lives are repetitive. We, we don't have singular events, unique events every day. And in fact, a lot of us, if we reflect on our autobiographies, who we are, what made us who we are, it's those every Sunday dinner at grandma's, right? It's every summer my family took a vacation. It's not the one-time event. It is the, it's those, those the, 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 the fabric of our lives are these repeated events that involve the same people over and over. And I, I actually think autobiographical memories are this kind of odd man out, um, but yet that's where a lot of the literature has focused. And when we talk about childhood amnesia, that's really what people are talking about. Uh, I, I just, uh, one thing I witnessed this once, a child who was separated from a nanny at the age of one mm. after a very long lapse of time when the nanny returned not only recognized the nanny, but pushed his mother away to be with the nanny. Mm. So that's a very strong emotional memory, right. and that was right. formed by the age of one. Right. There, it's, it's interesting that it, this, this childhood amnesia is a very, very well-documented phenomenon. Um, in an audience of this size, we absolutely would replicate the finding that the average age of earliest memory is between three and four. What we would also replicate is that at least one person would have an event from at least the second year of life, and at least one person would say, my earliest memory isn't until I'm eight or nine years old. Mm -hmm. So we have this enormous individual difference, and I think it's one of the few areas in which we have such a pronounced individual difference. Is it related to the age at which uh, language you know, which language develops? You know, th thus far, that has not proven to be the case, and I think that's because language always, if you're a typically developing child, language develops between one and three years of age, so there's not enough variability. It is related to a lot of interesting things. It's related to birth status. Individuals who were first born tend to have earliest memories. Women tend to have memories from earlier in life than men is another cultural differences. Western cultures, we tend to have memories from earlier in life than Eastern cultures. So there are all kinds of really interesting individual differences. I have a daughter who, my daughter started uh, speaking with a little bit of an impediment and, and you couldn't understand anything she says. She says mm -hmm. she remembers this, trying to communicate with... That's it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was obviously something that was... And, and that happened more than once, right? Yes. You know, that was, a, mm -hmm. it was an ongoing event, ongoing struggle um, for her. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. really interesting. But there wasn't... There sort of was language, but it wasn't our language. But it's not your language, mm -hmm. yeah. That's really interesting. You've given me a lot of ideas. 
a lot of questions, including what is memory, which you asked, and then you left. It's like, what is memory? What is a memory? <laughs> Thank you for mentioning this at the, the uh, alumni research. My mom got a birthday card. It was eight panels. There's a little baby girl in a birthday hat, and the next one she's a little girl in a birthday hat, and then she's a teenager in a birthday hat. She's a young adult in a birthday hat, and an adult in a birthday hat, and she's a woman in a birthday hat. She's a senior, then she's old. And the last panel says, well, that sucked. Oh. (laughs) You made me think that there might be a reason to make wordless stories for adults. Thank you. And just uh, this panel, it just reminded me of a lot of things. I can't say that I remember anything you said. I'm thinking about my own memory. If I go home and somebody asks, I'll say, well, this one had rosy cheeks. He talked about Stuart Little. This guy didn't tell us the joke. He didn't tell us the other jokes. She had a scarf. He had a warm voice. He's the illustrator. It's all being videoed. You'll be fine. (laughs) You don't have to remember a thing. I'm just talking about the limits of my own memory. I'm staring at this orange chair, and when I close my eyes, I don't have any orange chair in my mind. And maybe you do. You're an illustrator. It just makes me wonder what memories are. And when you talk about the stories that people tell, I think that they do preserve our lives, but I also think they pickle our lives. People tell the stories in the same way, and maybe it happened differently, or there's some other part of it that you didn't see, or in a, and then you keep hearing the story the same way, and I think it might obliterate some of the truth of what happened. And so when kids are telling, when kids are closing their eyes, or when kids are, are remembering things, or when kids are thinking things, that's tremendously exciting, and I don't spend a lot of time around kids, but what I know about kids is that their minds are near adult minds a lot, right? It's not that the kids just have their life. And I wish that as a kid, other people, would, I think you said, to take advantage of the way a kid thinks and the, and the way a kid's mind works rather than trying to turn it in, you know, make it work a different way to be in school. Well. And my, my own thought is that if I had been in school and anybody had been trying to teach me something and I'd been able to sit on a bouncy ball and learn it, that I could have learned it better because that's the way I am. And, or with music or with dancing or with play acting or improvisation. And I just hope that, that there are opportunities for, you know, we're not just studying kids' minds, but that we're open to... The, the magnificence of, of what's possible and not just trying to train it up to be something smaller and, and more uniform. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I love the little description that stories can pickle people's lives. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Hi. Um, so I have two what I hope to be concise questions for you. Um, the, the first question is in terms of um, amnesia, of autobiographical memory. Is there any evidence that that manifests in dreams? Um, in, in dreams? In dreams. I, I personally just find that sometimes I have dreams of, um, you know, sort of, you know, what I, what I could see very conceivably, you know, being, you know, in, in the, you know, the body of an infant. And you know, and and 
sort of operating within that paradigm. And so, so that's question number one. Um, and uh, question number two is in terms of, uh, you were talking about the interpretation of facial expression, and I wonder about the other side of that. Is there any research in, you know, it essentially does a deficiency in, in the ability to make facial expression exist, and, and if not, if that's considered to be sort of an innately human thing, then what are the implications for that for communication, for the development of communication? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think our, our dream experts um, are, are here. <laughs> well, in terms of amnesia, I mean, I'm thinking that... Uh, you know what? What Pat already, Patricia already said was that we do retain certain aspects of memory. It may not be specific events in time, but it could be things like just your sense of your body. I, mean, I could imagine something like that that you could retain something like that. Um, so I think, and if they're in the dreams, how are we going to know that? You know, that's, that's my dilemma. We know that, I think dreams are very, very significant, but I think of them more in terms of being what it means to you about the dream rather than it being a, repl a repl representation or replica of something that literally happened. I, I guess so, my, my question yeah. is sort of the distinction between being able to sort of call upon at will a narrative of something that's happened as opposed to having that be Im embedded so sort of implicitly in the subconscious in a way that would, would manifest in a dream but not in, in real life. I, I, I actually think that is what, this, what Patricia was trying to distinguish between this episodic, explicit kind of memory versus more implicit forms of memory that have more to do with emotion and behavior mm -hmm. and nonverbal experience, yeah. I'd also yeah. say a dream is is just a thought you have when you're asleep. Yeah. And it's, it's not, you know, people throughout history, starting certainly with the Bible and Joseph, have, would like to believe that, that dreams are special communications. And what makes dreams different from ordinary daydreams or thoughts that you have or fantasies that you have is that you're asleep when you have them. So the kind of thinking that you do when you're asleep is different from the kind of thinking you do when you're awake. It's more visual. Um, things don't always make sense, things happen that aren't real, and all of those things can happen in a daydream too, but you're pretty clear that that's going on while you're doing it. So I think we have no way of knowing if you dream something in which you're imagining yourself as a child, whether that's because that's a real memory of when you were a child, or whether you're having a, a fantasy of what I wish my childhood were really, had been like, or Thank God my childhood wasn't like what I'm just thinking about right now. I mean, dreams have motives to them. But I don't think we should ever assume that we know in advance what the mechanism is, any more than we would, you know, if you're just sitting by yourself, bored and having a daydream. It doesn't necessarily, you don't know why, where it comes from, just by that. Well, my second question was about uh, does uh, does a deficiency in the formation of facial expressions exist, and if it if it yeah. doesn't really it does. I think so. There's a condition, a condition. I mean, everything's on a spectrum. Like right. Patricia was right. saying, everything's on a bell-shaped curve. You know, normal is, you know, a wide range. But 
Yes, I think there are people who um, are not as much in tune with their emotional life, and I think it's reflected in they have less affective expression in their faces, yes. I think there are people like that. I think I've seen them. Mm -hmm. And and does that then manifest in also sort of mirror neuron problems? Like, you know, they they cannot manifest expressions to mirror other people, therefore they have, you know, less... Of, of a conception of I don't what think other... anyone has actually studied that, mm-hmm. but one of the, um, you know, we're, a lot of what we have to understand about ourselves as people is the impact we have on other people. So if someone is not expressing very much, they're going to have a different impact on someone else than if they're very expressive. And unless they know that, life will be very confusing. Um, and so, whereas someone who's very expressive like me, you know, has a different impact. And sometimes it's a little too much for people and I have to, you know, contain myself. And so I have to know about that impact. And so it's just the range and I think it's... uh... But I'm nervous about assuming that somebody who is not so expressive lacks some inner emotional life. (laughs) I mean, the British are worried about that. No, no, no. (laughs) I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I think people who who are not in touch are are maybe less expressive on their... I think they... Not always. I mean, we have different... No, but I meant to tell you... She asked if there's a category of people, and I think there is a category. I don't mean that as a broad generalization. No, but I'm just entertaining the thought that there could be a, a certain type of person who's deeply in touch with their emotional life, but for whatever reason masks it. They've been, yes. So much irony. Well, yes. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I understand about children is, and that is unique to the human species, unlike other animals, is we are raised to fit in with with the social, cultural norms of the society we're raised in which means you can take a child born in Russia, you know, carry them to you know, Patagonia, and they're going to do just fine because the way of life is something you learn from the adults around you. And so if you grow up in Britain, you're, you are, <laughs> you're perfectly well socialized to behave in a particular way that to a New Yorker would seem, you know... Cold, right? But it isn't. You said it. <laughs> well, my husband, I, my husband's from Iowa, and I'm from New York, and I live in Los Angeles. And when he first came to New York, he said, "Oh, now I get it. Everyone yells at each other." <laughs> I thought it, he thought it was just me. But there's some, there's something of an emotional two-way street, isn't there? And the, the, you, you're, if you spend your day smiling, just the fact that your smile muscles are turned on yes. does have, I mean, from does, what I've yeah. read, not that I do it, but, you know. So I presume that if, if, you, if your muscles don't work and your face won't express, maybe mm. you would have a harder time emotionally uh, feeling the things that you would otherwise, but... Uh, mm-hmm. Two observations from the talk that I I wonder if you guys would comment on. Uh, The first is, uh, um, essentially, I guess you've been talking about declarative memory and have not really been that explicit about that during the discussion. Um, And declarative memory is about conscious, you know, recollection, as opposed to all the other kinds of memory which have been kind of mixed in 
having to do with skill, acquisition, stuff like that, which is not necessarily conscious. And consciousness is very selective, you know, so for the most part, consciousness serves uh, in, in terms of expectation. And when we see situations which are beyond our expectation, we switch from our habit system to a more conscious system because we're attempting to uh, adjust our model to these surprising circumstances and, and update our model and integrate this new experience. So I, I wonder if maybe you guys could comment on that. The other issue was uh, the thing about hot and cold cognition. Um, and uh, so there were some interesting dis discussions about, you know, how adolescents don't switch that on. And so, you know, I, I always recall this 12-year-old that sat next to me in a bus, and she said, excuse me, sir, is this seat not taken? And she spoke to me like an adult. And I, I just had to ask her a whole bunch of questions. And she lived on a cattle ranch in Northern California where she had learned to ride when she was seven and she had her own horses. Her father took her out uh, hunting. She learned how to shoot a gun by the age of nine. She was a sharpshooter. And she told me about one time when she had to stay in the woods because a cougar was circling around and she climbed a tree and fell asleep. And what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there hasn't been much of a discussion of other cultures. And other cultures have a lot of demands, you know, and, and when we were, you know, a couple hundred years ago, you know, by the time you were 12 or 14, you, you, you had a lot of expectations put on you, and your brain had done that flip from being mostly, you know, reflexive and imitative to starting to be more prefrontal and being able to, you know, adjust to those expectations and demands. So cultural issues as well as biological issues work together in turning that, that system, those systems on. And I wonder if you might comment on those things. That, that's a, a great observation, of course. You know, what, those of us who study brain development, we often we, we do it from a brain-centric perspective, right? We talk about the impact of brain development on behavior. But of course, the environment and, the, and behavior impact brain development. So your observation about, um, you know, over evolutionary time, um, it, it's entirely likely that we have somewhat slowed down the development of, or uh, the maturation and the, the, the development of the prefrontal cortex because we aren't making those demands on our adolescence. We have this extended period of adolescence. So it's not a, you know, it's not a coincidence, but it does work both ways, and you're absolutely right to point that out, um, that it, we, we can't just talk about brain development and its impact on behavior. We also have to think about the demands and the situations in which the individual and the culture, right, places the individuals, and that does impact the extent to which, uh, or the speed at which, and the extent to which um, we are seeing development. So um, that's, that's a, an excellent observation. The issue of declarative, or the, the explicit conscious um, memory, that's what we can bring into the laboratory. Uh, that's what we can bring into the, um, to the therapy session, except through other probing techniques that, that you can study. But certainly from the standpoint of laboratory science, 
that's the, that's the focus. And when we think about autobiographical or personal memories, they are defined in terms of these consciously accessible memories. So the category is limited uh, to that 5% of our, of our lives that we spent being consciously aware. Most of our behavior is determined um, outside of our awareness. Um, so it, they're, they're both very good observations. Though for people in my world, almost everything we're studying is things that people are not consciously aware of. Yeah, so you conscious. use language all the time, you're not conscious how you're doing it. And it's, it's almost declarative is the last thing we deal with. <laughs> okay, well, oh, one more. Uh, two things that I recall uh, reading somewhere. One was uh, something in one of the Malcolm Gladwell books about, um, I think, a fellow by the name of Erickson who had categorized all the muscles in the face mm -hmm. to uh, talk about their, what they were thinking emotionally. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I remember one thing that he said in there was when uh, I think Erickson, was, or whoever it was, was watching the Democratic Convention and he saw Clinton and he said, Peck's bad boy, just from the muscular expressions. So I wonder if you could comment about that. And secondly, something I remember reading a long time ago, sometimes where we can't articulate a feeling, it might be something that we absorbed as an infant where we couldn't speak, but yet we still had that feeling. So just comment on either, I'd like to hear. Eckert is Eckert. the is Ekman. the is Ekman. Thank you, Ekman. Paul Ekman. We three brains. Uh, to remember. There we go. That's right. Locally stupid units, right? We, you know, we 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 managed Paul Ekman, and he it, it is an exquisite um, categorization scheme that um, is 277 points. I think on the face. I don't know the scheme, so I um, I've never labored to learn it. But absolutely, where you can characterize every muscle in the face and those that are associated with positive expressions, negative expressions, um, and the like. So, and but I he, I won't comment about Clinton. <laughs> he does. I mean, uh, just a cautious word about Ekman. He's in part sold this research as a way of analyzing the extent to which people are misleading you and so the security agencies in the United States for example have funded quite a lot of his research on the grounds that it will help them figure out who is telling the truth and who is lying and I think uh, psychologists, experimental psychologists would be much more nervous about the claim that he tends to make which is that he can distinguish truth tellers from liars. It turns out to be very difficult. He claims a certain success, but anyway, I'm just, I just want to insert a, a question mark there. Into that, yeah, absolutely. Our last question. Okay. Uh, my question is about like the stories that children are told, like, and especially like fairy tales. I mean, it seems to me that like, you know, the Walt Disney version <laughs> of say Snow White or Cinderella is very different from like the Grimm's, you know, Grimm's fairy tales, you know, and how that kind of affects, even, even like in the story of like Cinderella, well now you have like a more feminist kind of perspective on what like, you know, Cinderella or Snow White is, so how kind of culture evolves and... I guess I, I should respond. That's yours. <laughs> uh, 
Well, for one, one thing, the, a very pragmatic thing is the Walt Disney movies take, what, 45 minutes or an hour and a half or something, and, and a fairy tale you read in uh, five minutes. So they add a lot of things. But clearly there, there's a lot of uh, values being looked at and thought about and taught and, and uh, commercial values, especially, I think, in the case of uh, you know, Hollywood studios. So the, the fairy tales uh, are not necessarily really the um, uh, ways to plumb the depths of, of the social mind that the Grimm's brothers and people after them claimed, because there's a lot of actual literary uh, content to those by, you know, by artists, writers who are writing things. But, but it's, it's a matter of, of different values, basically. I, I think that uh, um, I prefer the, the Grimm's. <laughs> And a lot of people grow up prefer. I, I was un under the impression that those fairy tales were not necessarily specifically for children when they were originally. No, they were they were collected as folk tales, and and yeah. uh, the, the story, as I sort of believe it, is that the Grimm brothers were involved in the program to collect stories that would define the German nationality and create a German culture that didn't really exist as as one thing, and that was what they you know they were also linguists creating a German a dictionary of, of etymology. So, so this was kind of the same thing in terms of stories. And, and that was what they were doing. But as soon as it came out in 1815, they published their first collection. And people all over the place bought it and gave it to their children. Huh. And they had to go back and uh, sort of rewrite their preface. This, uh, it, things changed. They, they started changing the way they told these stories. And even they, as they went on through the years revising the stories and making different editions. They changed the stories to make them, in their case, they, they made them more appropriate for children as they saw it because they got more vicious and the punishments were worse and simpler in the, in the morality that they were telling. Because there were a lot of things in the first edition that were very morally weird and funny and, and great in, in a ways because they, because they got them in some cases straight from the storytellers who were having a good time. So. Okay, well, please join me in thanking our participants for providing such a fascinating discussion today. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, the whole conversation would be broadcast. <laughs> <laughs>